Frontier Missions Journal. Stories of hope for the unreached with Adventist Frontier Missions. My mind raced. What was happening here? How is it that her condition had deteriorated so quickly? I knew that doctors here sometimes practice euthanasia without the consent of patients. So I did what anyone else in that situation would. I began to clap my hands and to make a scene. Le médecin, I cried. Where is the doctor? I hollered, but no doctor appeared. For the next week or so, Madame B hung between life and death. Hi, my name is Mark Coleman. I'm the director of international field operations for Adventist Frontier Missions. Kathy, my wife, as well as my girls, Rebecca and Chelsea, and myself served in Guinea, West Africa for 10 years. We also served at the beginning of our marriage in Thailand for five years. Field operations here at AFM deals with operational issues in mission. It's the logistics, the personnel management, the pastoral care of missions. I like to say it's it's the act of imposing order on the messiness of mission. We work hand-in-hand with other departments to make sure that our missionaries are as effective as possible in reaching their goal, and that is planting the church in unentered regions of the world. We call this story, Even Families Don't Do That Here. In our city, during dry season, life begins to pick up. The days are very hot, with the temperature often hovering at about 110 degrees. During the hottest part of the day, all is quiet as people escape the merciless rays of the sun for their afternoon siesta. This day, like all the rest, was extremely uncomfortable. Even the shade of the large mango trees all around offered little respite. And since electricity was intermittent at best, even the inside of the house didn't offer much shelter from the heat. But when evening came, the boys came out onto the roads to play pickup soccer games. Food vendors made their way to prominent places to sell fried fish, baked and grilled cassava, bread right out of the oven, and many other things. These ladies would often sell late into the night. On this particular evening, I was making my rounds, visiting members of the new little church group in their homes. Life was hard for many of them, and I wanted to encourage them. As their pastor, the only pastor most of them had ever known, it gave me opportunity to pray with them and just to generally know what was going on in their lives. Our little church was a mix of former Muslims, former animists, and Christians who had come from other denominations. They hailed from different tribes and were striving to put ethnic and other differences aside to form a united Adventist church body. The country and city were 85% Muslim, so just maintaining their faith was a challenge. Madam B's African wrap, usually tied around her head 
or attached around her waist, was unfurled and draped over her head like some sort of flowing headdress. This was a sure sign to me that she wasn't feeling well. In Guinea, the way a lady wears her head wrap tells an awful lot. Her eyes were tired as I greeted her in the small yard of her cinder block row house with, with low-hanging eaves. The home had been provided by the local mining company, and hundreds of workers lived with their families in this sprawling complex. It faintly resembled North American low-income housing, often referred to as projects. Her husband, a factory employee, had long since moved out to live with one of his other wives. He had four. Madam B. sold homemade cakes every day in front of the local Catholic school to eke out an income and raise her five children. She was suffering with a terminal disease. She told me she was feeling very ill that day and was going to go to the hospital. With so many other visits to make, I was only able to talk with her very briefly, but I told her that I'd come by the hospital the next day to see her. Nothing, though, could have prepared me for the sight that met my eyes the next day as I walked into the large general ward at the hospital. Ten beds were lined up on opposite sides of the large room, where anyone's health crisis was everyone's business. I spotted Madame B and her oldest daughter. Her oldest daughter was probably in her 20s. She was with Madame B, holding her shaking hands and crying silently. A nurse injected something into the IV bag and then moved away furtively as I approached. It seemed like everyone in the ward was staring at me as I greeted Madame B. She responded, but it was gibberish. She made a motion as if she wanted to get up, but could not. My mind raced. What was happening here? How is it that her condition had deteriorated so quickly? I knew that doctors here sometimes practiced euthanasia without the consent of patients. She looked to me as if she were going into shock from having been given a strong dose of quinine without the necessary accompanying glucose. Is that what the nurse had been doing? So I did what anyone else in that situation would. I began to clap my hands hey. and to make a scene. Où hey. est le médecin? I cried. Where is the doctor? I hollered, but no doctor appeared. Someone must have gone and called my friend Dr. B because soon he walked in. A strict Muslim and a very kind man, Dr. B had been a personal friend for several years. Taking me by the hand, he walked me out of the room so he could speak privately with me. Mark, he said, you're a pastor, so let me share some things with you. He reminded me of Madame B's long-term prognosis and the terminal sickness she was battling. Without actually saying the words, he was confirming for me what I had feared, 
The attending physician was euthanizing her. I stopped Dr. B mid-sentence. Can't she come back from this if we take care of her? He shrugged his shoulders and said, maybe, maybe not. I told him to make sure the attending physician put her in a private room and that he began to take care of her and give her the proper medications and nourishment through her IV. For the next week or so, Madame B hung between life and death. The ladies of the little church group, all of them converts except for my wife and the wife of the other missionary, kept vigil in the hospital around the clock. They washed and bathed Madame B. They prayed for her. They sang. And when it appeared she would pass in the night, they would call the other ladies and they'd call me. One night, my wife called me from the hospital room and told me to get there in the morning because it looked as if Madame B. would soon pass. She was completely unresponsive and no longer opening her eyes or eating. Her limbs were drawn up and her breathing was heavy. The ladies gathered around her bed and began to sing in the Susu language. It was early in the morning. Their words were, Mbara Nyete Tongo Bira Yesu Fohera. I have decided to follow Jesus. They sang softly. The end was near. But then something started to happen. As they sang, Madame B, who was close to death, began to stir. She was responding to the song. Way back in her throat, she was trying to form sounds. She was trying to sing. Was she rallying? No, she couldn't be. Yes, she was. That song was the beginning of her awakening from her semi-comatose state. Within days, she was awake and eating and talking. The news of her miraculous recovery shot through the ranks of the hospital, patients, nurses, and doctors. Here was a lady who no one had expected to live. She was alive and recovering quickly. Dr. B came to see me at home some weeks later. He said, Mark, what you Adventists did for Madame B was amazing. Even families don't do that here. Then he'd said something that I'll never forget for as long as I live. If I ever decide to become a Christian, I'll become an Adventist, he said. I remained silent as the words sank in. Here was a strict Muslim doctor who was allowing his mind to go places that no Muslim would ever do. He was entertaining the possibility of the inkling of the eventuality of maybe becoming a Christian one day. And if he ever did, he would become an Adventist. He'd made that clear. We'd never had a Bible study together, but he had seen Christian love in a small community of people from several cultures, putting aside tribal differences and acting as a true family. This had convinced him, and apparently others, because the next year, our school was inundated with children. Not just any children, but children of doctors and nurses from that hospital. 
all of them Muslim. On a Friday, 10 days after she had awakened, Madame B left the hospital. It was still dry season and it was still hot. She was still too weak to walk very far, but she made it home on a motorcycle taxi. Before her time in the hospital, Madame B was always the first person to arrive at church. She was always waiting outside of the gate for the person with the key to open it. The day after she got out of the hospital, Madame B was there the first person at the church Sabbath morning. As weak as she was, she was sitting on a motorcycle taxi waiting for the young man with the key to come, and you guessed it, to open the gate. Her husband, the one with the three other wives, was there. He was not only amazed by her recovery, but also by the love of this little church group. The daughter, who was with her mother in the hospital that day, had not been a Christian. Today, she is a faithful Seventh-day Adventist Christian who is growing in her love and her understanding of who God is. While not all of the people affected in this story converted to Christ and professed faith in Him, it was nevertheless a turning point in the life of that little church family and produced an effect in the community in that corner of Guinea that reverberates to this day, almost ten years later. enough stories in your daily missions diet? Why not subscribe to Adventist Frontiers magazine, the cutting edge of frontier mission life? Point your browser to afmonline.org. Scroll down and click on get a free to subscribe. That's right, a free subscription to Adventist Frontiers magazine, chock full of exciting stories directly from the mission field. Just go to afmonline.org. Org. Thank you for listening to Frontier Missions Journal.